Book One, Chapter Six of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty, Chapter Six: The Father of the Marshalsea. Thirty years ago, there stood a few doors short of the Church of Saint George in the borough of Southwark, on the left-hand side of the way going southward the Marshalsea Prison. It had stood there many years before, and it remained there some years afterwards, but it is gone now, and the world is none the worse without it. It was an oblong pile of barrack-building, partitioned into squalid houses standing back to back, so that there were no back rooms, environed by a narrow paved yard, hemmed in by high walls duly spiked at top, itself a close and confined prison for debtors, it contained within it a much closer and more confined jail for smugglers. Offenders against the revenue laws, and defaulters to excise or customs, who had incurred fines which they were unable to pay, were supposed to be incarcerated behind an iron-plated door, closing up a second prison, consisting of a strong cell or two, and a blind alley some yard and a half wide, which formed the mysterious termination of the very limited skittle-ground in which the Marshalsea debtors bowled down their troubles. Supposed to be incarcerated there, because the time had rather outgrown the strong cells and the blind alley, in practice they had come to be considered a little too bad, though in theory they were quite as good as ever which may be observed to be the case at the present day with other cells that are not at all strong, and with other blind alleys that are stone-blind. Hence the smugglers habitually consorted with the debtors, who received them with open arms, except at certain constitutional moments when somebody came from some office to go through some form of overlooking something which neither he nor anybody else knew anything about. On these truly British occasions the smugglers, if any, made a feint of walking into the strong cells and the blind alley, while this somebody pretended to do his something, and made a reality of walking out again as soon as he hadn't done it, neatly epitomising the administration of most of the public affairs in our right little, tight little island. They had been taken to the Marshalsea prison long before the day when the sun shone on Marseilles, and on the opening of this narrative, a debtor with whom this narrative has some concern. He was at that time a very amiable and very helpless middle-aged gentleman, who was going out again directly. Necessarily he was going out again directly, because the Marshalsea lock never turned upon a debtor who was not. He brought in a portmanteau with him, which he doubted its being worth while to unpack. He was so perfectly clear, like all the rest of them, the turnkey on the lock said, that he was going out again directly. He was a shy, retiring man well-looking, though in an effeminate style, with a mild voice, curling hair, and irresolute hands, rings upon the fingers in those days, which nervously wandered to his trembling lip a hundred times in the first half-hour of his acquaintance with the jail. His principal anxiety was about his wife. "'Do you think, sir,' he asked the turnkey, "'that she will be very much shocked if she should come to the gate to-morrow morning?' The turnkey gave it as the result of his experience, that some of them was, and some of them wasn't. In general, more no than yes. "'What like is she, you see?' he philosophically asked. "'That's what it hinges on.' 
she is very delicate and inexperienced indeed that said the turnkey is again her she is so little used to go out alone said the debtor that i am at loss to think how she will ever make her way here if she walks perhaps quoth the turnkey she take a acne coach perhaps the irresolute fingers went to the trembling lip i hope she will she may not think of it or perhaps said the turnkey offering his suggestions from the top of his well-worn wooden stool as he might have offered them to a child for whose weakness he felt a compassion perhaps she'll get her brother or or, or a sister to come along with her she has no brother or sister niece nevy cousin servant young woman greengrocer dash it one or another on him said the turnkey repudiating beforehand the refusal of all his suggestions i fear that i hope it is not against the rules that she will bring the children the children said the turnkey and the rules why lord set you up like a corner pin we've a regular playground of children here children why we swarm with them how many you got two said the debtor lifting his irresolute hand to his lip again and turning into the prison the turnkey followed him with his eyes and you another he observed to himself which makes three on you and your wife another i'll lay a crown which makes four on you and another coming i'll lay half a crown which will make five on you and i'll go another seven and sixpence to name which is the helplessest the unborn baby or you he was right in all his particulars she came next day with a little boy of three years old and a little girl of two and he stood entirely corroborated got a room now haven't you the turnkey asked the debtor after a week or two yes i have got a very good room any little sticks are coming to furnish it said the turnkey i expect a few necessary articles of furniture to be delivered by the carrier this afternoon mrs and littlands are coming to keep you company asked the turnkey why yes we think it better that we should not be scattered even for a few weeks even for a few weeks of course replied the turnkey and he followed him again with his eyes and nodded his head seven times when he was gone the affairs of this debtor were perplexed by a partnership of which he knew no more than that he had invested money in it by legal matters of assignment and settlement conveyance here and conveyance there suspicion of unlawful preference of creditors in this direction and a mysterious spiriting away of property in that and as nobody on the face of the earth could be more incapable of explaining any single item in the heap of confusion than the debtor himself nothing comprehensible could be made of his case to question him in detail and endeavour to reconcile his answers to closet him with accountants and sharp practitioners learned in the wiles of insolvency and bankruptcy was only to put the case out at compound interest and incomprehensibility 
the irresolute fingers fluttered more and more ineffectually about the trembling lip on every such occasion, and the sharpest practitioners gave him up as a hopeless job. "'Out!' said the turnkey. "'He'll never get out, unless his creditors take him by the shoulders and shove him out.' He had been there five or six months, when he came running to this turnkey one forenoon, to tell him, breathless and pale, that his wife was ill. "'As anybody might have known she would be,' said the turnkey. "'We intended,' he returned, "'that she should go to a country lodging only to-morrow. What am I to do? Oh, good heaven, what am I to do?' "'Don't waste your time in clasping your hands and biting your fingers.' responded the practical turnkey, taking him by the elbow, but come along with me. The turnkey conducted him, trembling from head to foot, and constantly crying under his breath, what was he to do, while his irresolute fingers bedabbled the tears upon his face, up one of the common staircases in the prison to a door on the garret story, upon which door the turnkey knocked with the handle of his key. "'Come in!' cried a voice inside. The turnkey, opening the door, disclosed in a wretched, ill-smelling little room, two hoarse, puffy, red-faced personages, seated at a rickety table, playing at all fours, smoking pipes, and drinking brandy. "'Doctor,' said the turnkey, "'here's a gentleman's wife in want of you, without a minute's loss of time.' The doctor's friend was in the positive degree of hoarseness, puffiness, red-facedness, all fours, tobacco, dirt, and brandy. The doctor, in the comparative, hoarser, puffier, more red-faced, more all-foury, tobaccoer, dirtier, and brandier. The doctor was amazingly shabby, in a torn and darned, rough-weather sea-jacket, out at elbows and eminently short of buttons. He had been in his time the experienced surgeon carried by a passenger-ship. The dirtiest white trousers conceivably by mortal man, carpet-slippers, and no visible linen. Child-bed! said the doctor, "'Arm the boy!' With that the doctor took a comb from the chimney-piece, and stuck his hair upright, which appeared to be his way of washing himself, produced a professional chest or case, of most abject appearance, from the cupboard where his cup and saucer and coals were, settled his chin on the frowsy wrap around his neck, and became a ghastly medical scarecrow. The doctor and the debtor ran downstairs, leaving the turnkey to return to the lock, and made for the debtor's room. All the ladies in the prison had got hold of the news, and were in the yard. Some of them had already taken possession of the two children, and were hospitably carrying them off. Others were offering loans of little comforts from their own scanty store. Others were sympathising with the greatest volubility. The gentlemen prisoners, feeling themselves at a disadvantage, had for the most part retired, not to say sneaked, to their rooms from the open windows of which some of them now complimented the doctor with whistles as he passed below, while others, with several stories between them, interchanged sarcastic references to the prevalent excitement. It was a hot summer day, and the prison rooms were baking between the high walls. In the debtor's confined chamber, Mrs. Bangham, charwoman and messenger, who was not a prisoner, though she had been once, but was the popular medium of communication with the outer world, had volunteered her services as fly-catcher and general attendant. The walls and ceiling were blackened with flies. Mrs. Bangham, expert in sudden device, 
with one hand fanned the patient with a cabbage-leaf, and with the other set traps of vinegar and sugar in galley-pots, at the same time enunciating sentiments of an encouraging and congratulatory nature adapted to the occasion. "'The flies trouble you, don't they, my dear?' said Mrs. Bangham. "'But perhaps they'll take your mind off it, too, and, and, and do you good. Or between the burying-ground, the grocers, the wagon-stables, and the porch-trade, the marshalsea flies gets very large. Perhaps they're sent as a consolation, <laughs> if we only knowed it. How are you now, my dear? No better? No, my dear, it ain't to be expected. You'll be worse before you're better, and you know it, don't you? Yes, that's right. And to think of a sweet little cherub being born inside the lock. Now ain't it pretty? Ain't that something to carry her through it present? Why, we ain't had such a thing happen here, my dear, not for—I couldn't name the time when. And you're crying, too, said Mrs. Bangham, to rally the patient more and more. You, making yourself so famous, with the flies a-falling in the galley-pots by fifties, and everything a-going on so well. And here, if there ain't— said Mrs. Bangham, as the door opened, "'if there ain't your dear gentleman, along with Dr. Haggage. And now, indeed, we are complete, I think.' The doctor was scarcely the kind of apparition to inspire a patient with a sense of absolute completeness, but as he presently delivered the opinion, "'We are as right as we can be, Mrs. Bangham, and we shall come out of this like our sapphire.' and as he and mrs bangham took possession of the poor helpless pair as everybody else and anybody else had always done the means at hand were as good on the whole as better would have been the special feature in dr haggage's treatment of the case was his determination to keep mrs bangham up to the mark as thus mrs bangham said the doctor before he had been there twenty minutes go outside fetch a little brandy or we shall have you given in "'Thank you, sir, but none on my accounts,' said Mrs. Bangham. "'Mrs. Bangham,' returned the doctor, "'I am in professional attendance on this lady, and don't choose to allow any discussion on your part. Go outside and fetch a little brandy, or I foresee that you'll break down.' "'You're to be obeyed, sir,' said Mrs. Bangham, rising. "'If you was to put your own lips to it—' "'I think you wouldn't be the worse, for you look but poorly, sir.' "'Mrs. Bangham,' returned the doctor, "'I am not your business, thank you, but you are mine. Never you mind me, if you please. What you've got to do is to do as you are told, and to go and get what I bid you.' Mrs. Bangham submitted, and the doctor, having administered her potion, took his own. He repeated the treatment every hour, being very determined with Mrs. Bangham. Three or four hours passed, the flies fell into the traps by hundreds, and at length one little life, hardly stronger than theirs, appeared among the multitude of lesser deaths. "'A very nice little girl, indeed,' said the doctor. "'Little, but well-formed. Hello, Mrs. Bangham, you're looking queer. You be off, ma'am, this minute, and fetch a little more brandy, or we shall have you in hysterics.' By this time the rings had begun to fall from the debtor's resolute hands, like leaves from a wintry tree. Not one was left upon them that night, when he put something that chinked into the doctor's greasy palm, 
In the meantime, Mrs. Bangham had been out on an errand to a neighbouring establishment, decorated with three golden balls, where she was very well known. "'Thank you,' said the doctor. "'Thank you. Your good lady is quite composed, doing charmingly.' "'I'm very happy and very thankful to know it,' said the debtor, "'though I little thought once that—' "'That a child would be born to you in a place like this,' said the doctor. "'Pah, pah, sir, what does it signify? A little more elbow-room is all we want here. We are quiet here. We don't get badgered here. There's no knocker here, sir, to be hammered at by creditors, and bring a man's heart into his mouth.' Nobody comes here to ask if a man's at home, and to say he'll stand on the doormat till he is. Nobody writes threatening letters about money to this place. It's freedom, sir. It's freedom. I have had today's practice at home and abroad, on a march and aboard ship, and I'll tell you this. I don't know that I've ever pursued it under such quiet circumstances as here this day. Elsewhere, people are restless, hurried, hurried about, anxious respecting one thing and anxious respecting another. "'Nothing of the kind here, sir. We have done all that. We know the worst of it. We have got to the bottom. We can't fall, and what have we found? Peace. That's the word for it. Peace.' With this profession of faith, the doctor, who was an old jailbird, and was more sodden than usual, and had the additional and unusual stimulus of money in his pocket, returned to his associate and chum in hoarseness, puffiness, red-facedness, all fours, tobacco, dirt, and brandy. Now, the debtor was a very different man from the doctor, but he had already begun to travel, by his opposite segment of the circle, to the same point. Crushed at first by his imprisonment, he had soon found a dull relief in it. He was under lock and key, but the lock and key that kept him in kept numbers of his troubles out. If he had been a man with strength of purpose to face those troubles, and fight them, he might have broken the net that held him or broken his heart. But being what he was, he languidly slipped into this smooth descent, and never more took one step upward. When he was relieved of the perplexed affairs that nothing would make plain, through having them returned upon his hands by a dozen agents in succession, who could make neither beginning, middle, nor end of them, or him, he found his miserable place of refuge a quieter refuge than it had been before. He had unpacked the portmanteau long ago, and his elder children now playing regularly about the yard, and everybody knew the baby, and claimed a kind of proprietorship in her. "'Why, I'm getting proud of you,' said his friend the turnkey one day. "'You'll be the oldest inhabitant soon. The Marshalsea wouldn't be like the Marshalsea now without you and your family.' The turnkey really was proud of him. He would mention him in laudatory terms to newcomers, when his back was turned. "'You took notice of him?' he would say, that went out of the lodge just now. Newcomer would probably answer yes. Brought up as a gentleman he was, if ever a man was, educated, at no end of expense. Went into the marshal's house once, to try a new piano for him. Played it, I understand, like one o'clock. Beautiful. As to languages, speaks anything. We've had a Frenchman here in his time, and it's my opinion he'd know more French than the Frenchman did. We've had an Italian here in his time, and he shut him up in about a half a minute. You'll find some characters behind other locks, I don't say you won't. But if you want the top sawyer, in such respects as I've mentioned, you must come to the Marshalsea. 
When his youngest child was eight years old, his wife, who had long been languishing away, of her own inherent weakness, not that she retained any great sensitiveness as to her place of abode than he did, went upon a visit to a poor friend and old nurse in the country, and died there. He remained shut up in his room for a fortnight afterwards, and an attorney's clerk, who was going through the insolvent court, engrossed an address of condolence to him, which looked like a lease, and which all the prisoners signed. When he appeared again, he was greyer. He had soon begun to turn grey. And the turnkey noticed that his hands went often to his trembling lips again, as they had used to do when he first came in. But he got pretty well over it in a month or two, and in the meantime the children played about the yard as regularly as ever, but in black. Then Mrs. Bangham, long popular medium of communication with the outer world, began to be infirm, and to be found oftener than usual comatose on pavements, with her basket of purchases spilt, and the change of her clients ninepence short. His son began to supersede Mrs. Bangham, and to execute commissions in a knowing manner, and to be of the prison prisonous, of the streets streety. Time went on, and the turnkey began to fail. His chest swelled, and his legs got weak, and he was short of breath. The well-worn wooden stool was beyond him, he complained. He sat in an armchair, with a cushion, and sometimes wheezed so, for minutes together, that he couldn't turn the key. When he was overpowered by these fits, the debtor often turned it for him. "'You and me,' said the turnkey, one snowy winter's night, when the lodge, with a bright fire in it, was pretty full of company. "'Is the oldest inhabitants. I wasn't here myself above seven year before you. I shan't last long. When I'm off the lock, for good and all, you'll be the father of the Marshalsea." The turnkey went off the lock of this world next day. His words were remembered and repeated, and tradition afterwards handed down from generation to generation. A Marshalsea generation might be calculated as about three months, that the shabby old debtor, with the soft manner and the white hair, was the father of the Marshalsea. And he grew to be proud of the title. If any impostor had arisen to claim it, he would have shed tears in resentment of the attempt to deprive him of his rights. A disposition began to be perceived in him to exaggerate the number of years he had been there. It was generally understood that he must deduct a few from his account. He was vain, the fleeting generations of debtors said. All newcomers were presented to him. He was punctilious in the exaction of this ceremony. The wits would perform the office of introduction with overcharged pomp and politeness, but they could not easily overstep his sense of its gravity. He received them in his poor room. He disliked an introduction in the mere yard as informal, a thing that might happen to anybody, with a kind of bowed-down beneficence. They were welcome to the Marshalsea, he would tell them. Yes, he was the father of the place, so the world was kind enough to call him, and so he was, if more than twenty years of residence gave him a claim to the title. It looked small at first, but there was very good company there, among a mixture, necessarily a mixture, and very good air. It became a not unusual circumstance for letters to be put under his door at night, enclosing half a crown, two half-crowns, now and then at long intervals, even half a sovereign, 
for the father of the Marshalsea, with the compliments of a collegian taking leave. He received the gifts as tributes, from admirers, to a public character. Sometimes these correspondents assumed facetious names as The Brick, Bellows, Old Gooseberry, Wide Awake, Snooks, Mops, Cutaway, The Dog's Meat Man. But he considered this in bad taste, and was always a little hurt by it. In the fullness of time, this correspondence, showing signs of wearing out, and seeming to require an effort on the part of the correspondents, to which, in the hurried circumstances of departure, many of them might not be equal, he established the custom of attending collegians of a certain standing to the gate, and taking leave of them there. The collegian, under treatment, after shaking hands, would occasionally stop to wrap up something in a bit of paper, and would come back again, calling, "Hi." He would look round surprised. "'Me?' he would say with a smile. For this time the collegian would be up with him, and he would paternally add, "'What have you forgotten? What can I do for you?' "'I forgot to leave this,' the collegian would usually return, "'for the father of the Marshalsea.' "'My good sir,' he would rejoin, he is infinitely obliged to you, but to the last the resolute hand of old would remain in the pocket into which he had slipped the money, during two or three turns about the yard, lest the transaction should be too conspicuous to the general body of collegians. One afternoon he had been doing the honours of the place to a rather large party of collegians, who happened to be going out, when, as he was coming back, he encountered one from the poor side, who had been taken in execution for a small sum a week before, had settled in the course of that afternoon, and was going out too. The man was a mere plasterer in his working dress, had his wife with him, and a bundle, and was in high spirits. "'God bless you, sir,' he said in passing. "'And you?' benignantly returned the father of the Marshalsea. They were pretty far divided, going their several ways, when the plasterer called out, "'I say, sir,' and came back to him. "'It ain't much,' said the plasterer, putting a little pile of halfpence in his hand, "'but it's well meant.' The father of the Marshalsea had never been offered tribute in copper yet. His children often had, and with his perfect acquiescence it had gone into the common purse, to buy meat that he had eaten, and drink that he had drunk. But Fustian splashed with white lime, bestowing halfpence on him, front to front, was new. "'How dare you!' he said to the man, and feebly burst into tears. The plasterer turned him towards the wall, that his face might not be seen, and the action was so delicate, and the man was so penetrated with repentance, and asked pardon so honestly, that he could make him no less acknowledgment than, "'I know you mean it kindly. Say no more.' "'Bless your soul, sir,' urged the plasterer. "'I did indeed. I'd do more by you than the rest of them do, I fancy.' "'What would you do?' he asked. "'I come back to see you.' after I was let out. "'Give me the money again,' said the other eagerly, "'and I'll keep it, and never spend it. Thank you for it, thank you. I shall see you again.' "'If I live a week, you shall.' They shook hands and parted. The collegians assembled in symposium in the snuggery that night, 
marvelled what had happened to their father. He walked so late in the shadows of the yard, and seemed so downcast. End of Book One Chapter Six Book One Chapter Seven of Little Dorrit This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens Book One Poverty Chapter Seven The Child of the Marshalsea The baby whose first draught of air had been tinctured with Dr. Haggage's brandy was handed down among the generations of collegians like the tradition of their common parent. In the earlier stages of her existence she was handed down in a literal and prosaic sense, it being almost a part of the entrance-footing of every new collegian to nurse the child who had been born in the college. "'By rights,' remarked the turnkey when she was first shown to him, "'I ought to be her godfather.' The debtor irresolutely thought of it for a minute, and said, "'Perhaps you wouldn't object to really being her godfather.' "'Oh, I don't object,' replied the turnkey, "'if you don't.' Thus it came to pass that she was christened one Sunday afternoon, when the turnkey, being relieved, was off the lock, and that the turnkey went up to the font of St. George's Church, and promised and vowed and renounced on her behalf, as he himself related when he came back. "'Like a good'un!' This invested the turnkey with a new proprietary share in the child, over and above his former official one. When she began to walk and talk, he became fond of her, bought a little armchair, and stood it by the high fender of the lodge fireplace, liked to have her company when he was on the lock, and used to bribe her with cheap toys to come and talk to him. The child, for her part, soon grew so fond of the turnkey that she would come climbing up the lodge steps of her own accord at all hours of the day. When she fell asleep in the little armchair by the high fender, the turnkey would cover her with his pocket-handkerchief, and when she sat in it dressing and undressing a doll, which soon came to be unlike dolls on the other side of the lock, and to bear a horrible family resemblance to Mrs. Bangham, he would contemplate her from the top of his stool with exceeding gentleness. Witnessing these things, the collegians would express an opinion that the turnkey, who was a bachelor, had been cut out by nature for a family man. But the turnkey thanked them, and said, "'No, or oh no, it was enough to see other people's children there.' At what period of her early life the little creature began to perceive that it was not the habit of all the world to live locked up in narrow yards, surrounded by high walls with spikes at the top, would be a difficult question to settle. But she was a very, very little creature indeed, when she had somehow gained the knowledge that her clasp of her father's hand was to be always loosened at the door which the great key opened, and that while her own light steps were free to pass beyond it, his feet must never cross that line. A pitiful and plaintive look with which she had begun to regard him when she was still extremely young was perhaps a part of this discovery. With a pitiful and plaintive look for everything indeed, but with something in it for only him that was like protection, 
this child of the Marshalsea, and the child of the father of the Marshalsea, sat by her friend the turnkey in the lodge, kept the family room, or wandered about the prison-yard for the first eight years of her life. With a pitiful and plaintive look for her wayward sister, for her idle brother, for the high blank walls, for the faded crowd they shut in, for the games of the prison-children as they whooped and ran and played at hide-and-seek, and made the iron bars of the inner gateway home. Wistful and wondering, she would sit in summer weather by the high fender in the lodge, looking up at the sky through the barred window, until, when she turned her eyes away, bars of light would arise between her and her friend, and she would see him through a grating too. "'Thinking of the fields,' the turnkey said once, after watching her, "'ain't you?' "'Where are they?' she inquired. "'Why, they're over there, my dear,' said the turnkey, with a vague flourish of his key, "'just about there.' "'Does anybody open them and shut them? Are they locked?' The turnkey was discomfited. "'Well,' he said, "'not in general.' "'Are they very pretty, Bob?' she called him Bob by his own particular request and instruction. "'Lovely! Full of flowers! There's buttercups, there's uh, daisies, and there's—' uh, The turnkey hesitated, being short of floral nomenclature. "'There's uh, dandelions, and all manner of games.' "'Is it very pleasant to be there, Bob?' "'Prime!' said the turnkey. "'Was father ever there?' <coughs> coughed the turnkey. "'Oh, yes, he was there sometimes.' "'Is he sorry not to be there now?' "'Not particular,' said the turnkey. "'Nor any of the people?' she asked, glancing at the listless crowd within. "'Oh, are you quite certain and sure, Bob?' At this difficult point of the conversation, Bob gave in, and changed the subject to hard-bake, always his last resort when he found his little friend getting him into a political, social, or theological corner. But this was the origin of a series of Sunday excursions that these two curious companions made together. They used to issue from the lodge, on alternate Sunday afternoons, with great gravity, bound for some meadows or green lanes that had been elaborately appointed by the turnkey in the course of the week, and there she picked grass and flowers to bring home, while he smoked his pipe. Afterwards there were tea-gardens, shrimps, ale, and other delicacies, and then they would come back hand in hand, unless she was more than usually tired, and had fallen asleep on his shoulder. In those early days, the turnkey first began profoundly to consider a question which cost him so much mental labour that it remained undetermined on the day of his death. He decided to will and bequeath his little property of savings to his godchild, and the point arose, how could it be so tied up as that only she should have the benefit of it? His experience on the lock gave him such an acute perception of the enormous difficulty of tying up money with any approach to tightness, and contrariwise of the remarkable ease with which it got loose, 
that through a series of years he regularly propounded this knotty point to every new insolvent agent and other professional gentleman who passed in and out. Supposing, he would say, stating the case with his key on the professional gentleman's waistcoat, supposing a man wanted to leave his property to a young female, and wanted to tie it up so that nobody else should ever be able to take a grab at it. How would you tie up that property? Settle it strictly on herself, the professional gentleman would complacently answer. But, but look here, quoth the turnkey, supposing she had, say a brother, say a father, say a husband, who would be likely to make a grab of that property when she came into it. How about that? "'It would be settled on herself, and they would have no more legal claim on it than you,' would be the professional answer. "'Stop a bit,' said the turnkey. "'Supposing she was tender-hearted, and they came over her. Where's your law for tying it up, then?' The deepest character whom the turnkey sounded was unable to produce his law for tying such a knot as that. So the turnkey thought about it all his life, and died intestate after all. But that was long afterwards, when his goddaughter was past sixteen. The first half of that space of her life was only just accomplished, when her pitiful and plaintive look saw her father a widower. From that time the protection that her wondering eyes had expressed towards him became embodied in action and the child of the Marshalsea took upon herself a new relation towards the father. At first such a baby could do little more than sit with him, deserting her livelier place by the high fender and quietly watching him. But this made her so far necessary to him that he became accustomed to her, and began to be sensible of missing her when she was not there. Through this little gate she passed out of childhood into the care-laden world. What her pitiful look saw, at that early time, in her father, in her sister, in her brother, in the jail, how much, or how little, of the wretched truth it pleased God to make visible to her, lies hidden with many mysteries. It is enough that she was inspired to be something which was not what the rest were, and to be that something, different and laborious, for the sake of the rest. Inspired? Yes. Shall we speak of the inspiration of a poet or a priest? and not of the heart impelled by love and self-devotion to the lowliest work in the lowliest way of life. With no earthly friend to help her, or so much as to see her, but the one so strangely assorted, with no knowledge of the common daily tone and habits of the common members of the free community, who are not shut up in prisons, born and bred in a social condition, false even with a reference to the falsest condition outside the walls, drinking from infancy of a well whose waters had their own peculiar stain, their own unwholesome and unnatural taste. The child of the Marshalsea began her womanly life. No matter through what mistakes and discouragements, what ridicule, not unkindly meant but deeply felt, of her youth and little figure, what humble consciousness of her own babyhood and want of strength, even in the matter of lifting and carrying, through how much weariness and hopelessness, and how many secret tears, she drudged on until recognised as useful, even indispensable. That time came. 
she took the place of eldest of the three in all things but precedence, was the head of the fallen family, and bore in her own heart its anxieties and shames. At thirteen she could read and keep accounts, that is, could put down in words and figures how much the bare necessaries that they wanted would cost, and how much less they had to buy them with. She had been, by snatches of a few weeks at a time, to an evening school outside, and got her sister and brother sent to day-schools, by desultory starts, during three or four years. There was no instruction for any of them at home, but she knew well, no one better, that a man so broken as to be the father of the Marshalsea could be no father to his own children. To these scanty means of improvement she added another of her own contriving. Once, among the heterogeneous crowd of inmates, there appeared a dancing-master. Her sister had a desire to learn the dancing-master's art, and seemed to have a taste that way. At thirteen years old, the child of the Marshalsea presented herself to the dancing-master with a little bag in her hand, and preferred her humble petition. "'If you please, I was born here, sir.' "'Oh! You are the young lady, are you?' said the dancing-master, surveying the small figure and uplifted face. "'Yes, sir.' "'And what can I do for you?' said the dancing-master. Uh, "'Nothing for me, sir, thank you,' anxiously undrawing the strings of the little bag. "'But if—while you stay here, you could be so kind as to teach my sister cheap—' "'My child, I'll teach her for nothing,' said the dancing-master, shutting up the bag. He was as good-natured a dancing-master as ever danced to the insolvent court, and he kept his word. The sister was so apt a pupil, and the dancing-master had such abundant leisure to bestow upon her, for it took him a matter of ten weeks to set to his creditors, lead off, turn the commissioners, and right and left back to his professional pursuits. That wonderful progress was made. Indeed, the dancing-master was so proud of it and so wishful to display it before he left to a few select friends among the collegians, that at six o'clock on a certain fine morning a minuet de la cour came off in the yard, the college rooms being of too confined proportions for the purpose, in which so much ground was covered, and the steps were so conscientiously executed, that the dancing-master, having to play the kit besides, was thoroughly blown. The success of this beginning, which led to the dancing-master's continuing his instruction after his release, emboldened the poor child to try again. She watched and waited months for a seamstress. In the fullness of time a milliner came in, and to her she repaired on her own behalf. "'I beg your pardon, ma'am,' she said, looking timidly round the door of the milliner, whom she found in tears and in bed, "'but I was born here.' Everybody seemed to hear of her as soon as they arrived, for the milliner sat up in bed, drying her eyes, and said, just as the dancing-master had said, "'Oh, you are the child, are you?' "'Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. I haven't got anything for you,' said the milliner, shaking her head. "'It's not that, ma'am. If you please, I want to learn needlework.' "'Why should you do that?' returned the milliner. With me before you, it has not done me much good. Nothing, whatever it is, seems to have done anybody much good who comes here, she returned in all simplicity. But I want to learn, just the same. 
"'I am afraid you are so weak, you see,' the milliner objected. "'I don't think I am weak, ma'am.' "'And you are so very, very little, you see,' the milliner objected. "'Yes, I am afraid I am very little indeed,' returned the child of the Marshalsea, and so began to sob over that unfortunate defect of hers, which came so often in her way. The milliner, who was not morose or hard-hearted, only newly insolvent, was touched, took her in hand with good will, found her the most patient and earnest of pupils, and made her a cunning workwoman in course of time. In course of time, and in the very self-same course of time, the father of the Marshalsea gradually developed a new flower of character. The more fatherly he grew, as to the Marshalsea, and the more dependent he became on the contributions of his changing family, the greater stand he made by his forlorn gentility. With the same hand that he pocketed a collegian's half-crown half an hour ago, he would wipe away the tears that streamed over his cheeks if any reference were made to his daughters earning their bread. So, over and above other daily cares, the child of the Marshalsea had always upon her the care of preserving the genteel fiction that they were all idle beggars together. The sister became a dancer. There was a ruined uncle in the family group, ruined by his brother, the father of the Marshalsea, and knowing no more how than his ruiner did, but accepting the fact as an inevitable certainty, on whom her protection devolved. Naturally a retired and simple man, he had shown no particular sense of being ruined at the time when that calamity fell upon him. Further than that, he left off washing himself when the shock was announced, and never took to that luxury any more. He had been a very indifferent musical amateur in his better days, and when he fell with his brother, resorted for support to playing a clarionet as dirty as himself in a small theatre orchestra. It was the theatre in which his niece became a dancer. He had been a fixture there a long time, when she took her poor station in it, and he accepted the task of serving as her escort and guardian, just as he would have accepted an illness, a legacy, a feast, starvation, anything but soap. To enable this girl to earn her few weekly shillings, it was necessary for the child of the Marshalsea to go through an elaborate form with the father. Fanny is not going to live with us just now, father. She will be here a good deal in the day, but she is going to live outside with uncle. You surprise me. Why? I think uncle wants a companion, father. He should be attended to and looked after. A companion? He passes much of his time here. And you attend to him and look after him, Amy, a great deal more than ever your sister will. You all go out so much. You all go out so much. This was to keep up the ceremony and pretense of his having no idea that Amy herself went out by the day to work. But we're always glad to come home, father, now are we not? And as to Fanny, perhaps besides keeping Uncle company and taking care of him, it may be as well for her not quite to live here always. She was not born here as I was, you know, father. Well, Amy, well, I don't quite follow you, but it's natural, I suppose, that Fanny should 
prefer to be outside, and even that you often should, too. So, you and Fanny and your uncle, my dear, shall have your own way. Good, good. I'll not meddle. Don't mind me. To get her brother out of the prison, out of the succession to Mrs. Bangham in executing commissions, and out of the slang interchange with very doubtful companions, consequent upon both, was her hardest task. At eighteen he would have dragged on from hand to mouth, from hour to hour, from penny to penny, until eighty. Nobody got into the prison from whom he derived anything useful or good, and she could find no patron for him but her old friend and godfather. "'Dear Bob,' said she, "'what is to become of poor Tip?' His name was Edward, and Ted had been transformed into Tip within the walls. The turnkey had strong private opinions as to what would become of poor Tip, and had even gone so far with the view of averting their fulfilment as to sound Tip in reference to the expediency of running away and going to serve his country. But Tip had thanked him and said he didn't seem to care for his country. "'Well, my dear,' said the turnkey, "'something ought to be done with him. Suppose I try and get him into the law—that oh, would be so good of you, Bob." The turnkey had now two points to put to the professional gentleman as they passed in and out. He put this second one so perseveringly that a stool and twelve shillings a week were at last found for Tip in the office of an attorney in a great national palladium called the Palace Court at that time one of a considerable list of everlasting bulwarks to the dignity and safety of Albion, whose places know them no more. Tip languished in Clifford's inns for six months, and at the expiration of that term sauntered back one evening with his hands in his pockets, and incidentally observed to his sister that he was not going back again. "'Not going back again?' said the poor little anxious child of the Marshalsea always calculating and planning for Tip in the front rank of her charges. "'I am so tired of it,' said Tip, "'that I have cut it.' Tip tired of everything, with intervals of Marshalsea lounging and Mrs. Bangham's succession. His small second mother, aided by her trusty friend, got him into a warehouse, into a market-garden, into the hop-trade, into the law again, into an auctioneer's, into a brewery, into a stockbroker's, into the law again, into a coach-office, into a wagon-office, into the law again, into a general dealer's, into a distillery, into the law again, into a wool-house, into a dry-goods-house, into the Billingsgate trade, into the foreign fruit-trade, and into the docks. But whatever Tip went into, he came out of, tired, announcing that he had cut it. Wherever he went, this foredoomed Tip appeared to take the prison walls with him, and to set them up in such trade or calling, and to prowl about within their narrow limits in the old slipshod, purposeless, down-at-heel way, until the real immovable Marshalsea walls asserted their fascination over him, and brought him back. Nevertheless, the brave little creature did so fix her heart on her brother's rescue, that while he was wringing out these doleful changes, she pinched and scraped enough together to ship him for Canada. When he was tired of nothing to do, and disposed in his turn to cut even that, he graciously consented to go to Canada. And there was grief in her bosom over parting with him, 
and joy in the hope of his being put in a straight course at last. "'God bless you, dear Tip. Don't be too proud to come and see us when you've made your fortune.' "'All right,' said Tip, and went. But not all the way to Canada, in fact, not further than Liverpool. After making the voyage to that port from London, he found himself so strongly impelled to cut the vessel, that he resolved to walk back again. Carrying out which intention, he presented himself before her at the expiration of a month, in rags, without shoes, and much more tired than ever. At length, after another interval of successorship to Mrs. Bangham, he found a pursuit for himself, and announced it. "'Amy, I've got a situation.' "'Have you really and truly, Tip?' "'All right. I shall do now. You needn't look anxious about me any more, old girl.' "'What is it, Tip?' "'Why, you know, Slingo, by sight.' "'Not the man they call the dealer?' "'That's the chap. He'll be out on Monday, and he's going to give me a berth.' "'What is he a dealer in, Tip?' "'Horses. All right. I shall do now, Amy.' She lost sight of him for months afterwards, and only heard from him once. A whisper passed among the elder collegians, that he had been seen at a mock auction in Moorfields, pretending to buy plated articles for massive silver, and paying for them with the greatest liberality in banknotes. But it never reached her ears. One evening she was alone at work, standing up at the window, to save the twilight lingering above the wall, when he opened the door and walked in. She kissed and welcomed him, but was afraid to ask him any questions. He saw how anxious and timid she was, and appeared sorry. "'I'm afraid, Amy, you'll be vexed this time. Upon my life I am.' "'I am very sorry to hear you say so, Tip. Have you come back?' "'Why, yes.' "'Not expecting this time that what you had found would answer very well. I, I am less surprised and sorry than I might have been, Tip.' "'Ah, but that's not the worst of it.' "'Not the worst of it?' "'Don't look so startled. No, Amy, not the worst of it. I have come back, you see, but don't look so startled. I have come back in what I may call a new way. I am off the volunteer list altogether. I am in now, as one of the regulars.' "'Oh!' "'Don't say you are a prisoner, Tip. Don't! Don't!' "'Well, I don't want to say it,' he returned in a reluctant tone. "'But if you can't understand me without my saying it, what am I to do? I'm in for forty pound odd.' For the first time in all those years she sunk under her cares. She cried with her clasped hands lifted above her head, that it would kill their father if he ever knew it, and fell down at Tip's graceless feet. It was easier for Tip to bring her to her senses than for her to bring him to understand that the father of the Marshalsea would be beside himself if he knew the truth. The thing was incomprehensible to Tip, and altogether a fanciful notion. He yielded to it in that light only, when he submitted to her entreaties, backed by those of his uncle and sister. There was no want of precedent for his return. It was accounted for to the father in the usual way, and the collegians, with a better comprehension of the pious fraud than Tip, supported it loyally. This was the life, and this the history, 
of the child of the Marshalsea at twenty-two. With a still surviving attachment to the one miserable yard and block of houses as her birthplace and home, she passed to and fro in it, shrinkingly now, with a womanly consciousness that she was pointed out to every one. Since she had begun to work beyond the walls, she had found it necessary to conceal where she lived, and to come and go, as secretly as she could, between the free city and the iron gates, outside of which she had never slept in her life. Her original timidity had grown with this concealment, and her light step and her little figure shunned the thronged streets while they passed along them. Worldly wise in hard and poor necessities, she was innocent in all things else, innocent in the mist through which she saw her father, and the prison, and the turbid living river that flowed through it and flowed on. This was the life, and this the history, of little Dorrit, now going home upon a dull September evening, observed at a distance by Arthur Clennam. This was the life, and this the history, of little Dorrit, turning at the end of London Bridge, recrossing it, going back again, passing on to St. George's Church, turning back suddenly once more, and flitting in at the open outer gate and little courtyard of the Marshalsea. End of Book One, Chapter Seven Book One, Chapter Eight of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Eight. The Lock. Arthur Clennam stood in the street, waiting to ask some passer-by what place that was. He suffered a few people to pass him, in whose face there was no encouragement to make the inquiry, and still stood pausing in the street when an old man came up and turned into the courtyard. He stooped a good deal, and plodded along in a slow, preoccupied manner, which made the bustling London thoroughfares no very safe resort for him. He was dirtily and meanly dressed, in a threadbare coat, once blue, reaching to his ankles and buttoned to his chin, where it vanished in the pale ghost of a velvet collar. A piece of red cloth with which that phantom had been stiffened in its lifetime was now laid bare, and poked itself up at the back of the old man's neck into a confusion of grey hair and rusty stock and buckle which altogether nearly poked his hat off. A greasy hat it was and a napless, impending over his eyes, cracked and crumpled at the brim, and with a wisp of pocket-handkerchief dangling out below it. His trousers were so long and loose, that his shoes so clumsy and large, that he shuffled like an elephant, though how much of this was gait, and how much trailing cloth and leather, no one could have told. Under one arm he carried a limp and worn-out case, containing some wind instrument, in the same hand he had a penneth of snuff in a little packet of whitey-brown paper, from which he slowly comforted his poor blue old nose with a lengthened out pinch, as Arthur Clennam looked at him. To this old man crossing the courtyard, he preferred his inquiry, touching him on the shoulder. The old man stopped and looked round, with the expression in his weak grey eyes of one whose thoughts had been far off, and who was a little dull of hearing also. "'Pray, sir,' said Arthur, repeating his question, "'what is this place?' "'Aye, 
this place?' returned the old man, staying his pinch of snuff on its road, and pointing at the place without looking at it. "'This is the Marshalsea, sir.' "'The debtor's prison?' "'Sir,' said the old man, with the air of deeming it not quite necessary to insist upon that designation, "'the debtor's prison.' He turned himself about and went on. "'I beg your pardon,' said Arthur, stopping him once more, "'but will you allow me to ask you another question? Can any one go in here?' "'Any one can go in,' replied the old man, plainly adding by the significance of his emphasis, "'but it is not every one who can go out.' "'Pardon me once more. Are you familiar with the place?' "'Sir?' returned the old man, squeezing his little packet of snuff in his hand, and turning upon his interrogator as if such questions hurt him. "'I am.' "'I beg you to excuse me. I am not impertinently curious, but have a good object. Do you know the name of Dorrit here?' "'My name, sir,' replied the old man, most unexpectedly, is Dorrit? Arthur pulled off his hat to him. Grant me the favour of half a dozen words. I was wholly unprepared for your announcement, and hope that assurance is my sufficient apology for having taken the liberty of addressing you. I have recently come home to England, after a long absence. I have seen, at my mother's, Mrs. Clennam, in the city, a young woman— working at her needle, whom I have only heard addressed or spoken of as Little Dorrit. I have felt sincerely interested in her, and have had a great desire to know something more about her. I saw her, not a minute before you came up, pass in at that door." The old man looked at him attentively. "'Are you a sailor, sir?' he asked. He seemed a little disappointed by the shake of the head that replied to him. "'Not a sailor. I judged from your sunburnt face that you might be. Are you in earnest, sir?' "'I do assure you that I am, and do entreat you to believe that I am in plain earnest.' "'I know very little of the world, sir,' returned the other who had a weak and quavering voice, "'I am merely passing on, like the shadow over the sundial. It would be worth no man's while to mislead me. It would really be too easy, too poor a success to yield any satisfaction. The young woman whom you saw go in here is my brother's child. My brother is William Dorrit. I am Frederick. You say you have seen her at your mother's. I know your mother befriends her. You have felt an interest in her, and you wish to know what she does here. Come and see." He went on again, and Arthur accompanied him. My "'Brother,' said the old man, pausing on the step, and slowly facing round again, 
has been here many years and much that happens even among ourselves out of doors is kept from him for reasons that i needn't enter upon now be so good as to say nothing of my niece's working at her needle be so good as to say nothing that goes beyond what is said among us if you keep within our bounds you cannot well be wrong now come and see arthur followed him down a narrow entry at the end of which a key was turned and a strong door was opened from within it admitted them into a lodge or lobby across which they passed and so through another door and a grating into the prison the old man always plodding on before turned round in his slow stiff stooping manner when they came to the turnkey on duty as if to present his companion the turnkey nodded and the companion passed in without being asked whom he wanted the night was dark and the prison lamps in the yard and the candles in the prison windows faintly shining behind many sorts of wry old curtain and blind had not the air of making it lighter a few people loitered about but the greater part of the population was within doors the old man taking the right-hand side of the yard turned in at the third or fourth doorway and began to ascend the stairs they are rather dark sir but you will not find anything in the way he paused for a moment before opening a door on the second story he had no sooner turned the handle than the visitor saw little dorrit and saw the reason of her setting so much store by dining alone she had brought the meat home that she should have eaten herself and was already warming it on a gridiron over the fire for her father clad in an old grey gown and a black cap awaiting his supper at the table a clean cloth was spread before him with knife fork and spoon salt cellar pepper box glass and pewter ale pot such zests as his particular little phial of cayenne pepper and his penneth of pickles in a saucer were not wanting she started coloured deeply and turned white the visitor more with his eyes than by the slight impulsive motion of his hand entreated her to be reassured and to trust him i found this gentleman said the uncle mr clennam william son of amy's friend at the outer gate wishful as he was going by of paying his respects but hesitating whether to come in or not this is my brother william sir i hope said arthur very doubtful what to say that my respect for your daughter may explain and justify my desire to be presented to you mr clennam returned the other rising taking his cap off in the flat of his hand and so holding it ready to put on again you do me honour you are welcome sir with a low bow frederick a chair pray sit down mr clennam he put his black cap on again as he had taken it off and resumed his own seat there was a wonderful air of benignity and patronage in his manner these were the ceremonies with which he received the collegians 
"'You are welcome to the Marshalsea, sir. I have welcomed many gentlemen to these walls. Perhaps you are aware my daughter Amy may have mentioned that I am the father of this place.' "'I—so I have understood,' said Arthur, dashing at the assertion. "'You know, I dare say, that my daughter Amy was born here. A good girl, sir, a dear girl, and long a comfort and support to me. Amy, my dear, put this dish on. Mr. Clennam will excuse the primitive customs to which we are reduced here. Is it a compliment to ask you if you would do me the honour, sir, to—' "'Thank you.' returned Arthur, not a morsel. He felt himself quite lost in wonder at the manner of the man, and that the probability of his daughter's having had a reserve as to her family history should be so far out of his mind. She filled his glass, put all the little matters on the table ready to his hand, and then sat beside him while he ate his supper. Evidently, in observance of their nightly custom, she put some bread before herself, and touched his glass with her lips but Arthur saw she was troubled, and took nothing. Her look at her father, half admiring him, and proud of him, half ashamed for him, all devoted and loving, went to his inmost heart. The father of the Marshalsea condescended towards his brother as an amiable, well-meaning man, a private character who had not arrived at distinction. "'Frederick,' said he, you and Fanny sup at your lodgings to-night, I know. What have you done with Fanny, Frederick? She is uh, walking with Tip. Tip, as you may know, is my son, Mr. Clennam. He has been a little wild and difficult to settle, but his introduction to the world was rather—' um... He shrugged his shoulders with a faint sigh, and looked round the room— a little adverse. Your first visit here, sir? My first. You could hardly have been here since your boyhood without my knowledge. It very seldom happens that anybody of any pretensions, any pretensions, comes here without being presented to me. As many as forty or fifty in a day have been introduced to my brother said Frederick, faintly lighting up with a ray of pride. "'Yes,' the father of the Marshalsea assented, "'we have even exceeded that number. On a fine Sunday in term-time it is quite a levy, quite a levy. Amy, my dear, I have been trying half the day to remember the name of the gentleman from Camberwell, who was introduced to me last Christmas week by that agreeable co-merchant who was remanded for six months.' "'I don't remember his name, father.' "'Frederick, do you remember his name?' Frederick doubted if he had ever heard it. No one could doubt that Frederick was the last person upon earth to put such a question to, with any hope of information. "'I mean,' said his brother, "'the gentleman who did that handsome action with so much delicacy.' "'Ha! Tush!' The name has quite escaped me. Mr. Clennam, as I have happened to mention handsome and delicate action, you may like, perhaps, to know what it was. Very much, 
said Arthur, withdrawing his eyes from the delicate head beginning to droop, and the pale face, with a new solicitude, stealing over it. "'It is so generous, and shows so much fine feeling, that it is almost a duty to mention it. I said at the time that I always would mention it, on every suitable occasion, without regard to personal sensitiveness. Ah, uh, well, ah, uh, it's of no use to disguise the fact, you must know, Mr. Clennam, that it does sometimes occur that people who come here desire to offer some little uh, testimonial to the father of the place. To see her hand upon his arm in mute entreaty, half repressed, and her timid little shrinking figure turning away, was to see a sad, sad sight. Sometimes, he went on in a low, soft voice, agitated and clearing his throat every now and then. Sometimes <coughs> it takes one shape and sometimes another, but it is generally uh, money. And it is, I cannot but confess it, it is too often <coughs> acceptable. This gentleman that I refer to was presented to me, Mr. Clennam, in a manner highly gratifying to my feelings, and conversed not only with great politeness, but with great <coughs> information. All this time, though he had finished his supper, he was nervously going about his plate with his knife and fork, as if some of it were still before him. It appeared from his conversation that he had a garden, though he was delicate of mentioning it at first, as gardens are, <coughs> are not accessible to me. But it came out through my admiring a very fine cluster of geranium, beautiful cluster of geranium, to be sure, which he had brought from his conservatory. On my taking notice of its rich colour, he showed me a piece of paper around it, on which was written, for the father of the Marshalsea, and presented it to me. But this was <clears throat> not all. He made a particular request on taking leave that I would remove the paper in half an hour. I, I, I did so, and I found it contained <clears throat> two guineas. I assure you, Mr. Clennam, I have received <coughs> testimonials in many ways, and of many degrees of value, and they have always been, uh, unfortunately, acceptable. But I never was more pleased than with this, <coughs> this particular testimonial. Arthur was in the act of saying the little he could say on such a theme, when a bell began to ring, and footsteps approached the door. A pretty girl, of a far better figure, and much more developed than little Dorrit, though looking much younger in the face when the two were observed together, stopped in the doorway on seeing a stranger, and a young man who was with her stopped too. "'Mr. Clennam, Fanny, my eldest daughter, and my son, Mr. Clennam.' The bell is a signal for visitors to retire, and so they have come to say good-night. But there's plenty of time, plenty of time. Girls, Mr. Clennam will excuse any household business you may have together. 
he knows, I dare say, that I have but one room here. "'I only want my clean dress from Amy, father,' said the second girl. "'And I my clothes,' said Tip. Amy opened a drawer in an old piece of furniture. There was a chest of drawers above and a bedstead below, and produced two little bundles which she handed to her brother and sister. "'Mended and made up?' Clennam heard the sister ask in a whisper, to which Amy answered, "'Yes.' He had risen now, and took the opportunity of glancing round the room. The bare walls had been coloured green, evidently by an unskilled hand, and were poorly decorated with a few prints. The window was curtained, and the floor carpeted, and there were shelves and pegs, and other such conveniences that had accumulated in the course of years. It was a close, confined room, poorly furnished, and the chimney smoked to boot, or the tin screen at the top of the fireplace was superfluous, but constant pains and care had made it neat, and even, after its kind, comfortable. All the while the bell was ringing, and the uncle was anxious to go. "'Come, Fanny, come, Fanny,' he said, with his ragged clarionet case under his arm. "'The lock, child, the lock!' Fanny bade her father good-night, and whisked off airily. Tip had already clattered downstairs. "'Now, Mr. Clennam,' said the uncle, looking back as he shuffled out after them, "'the lock, sir, the lock.' Mr. Clennam had two things to do before he followed. One, to offer his testimonial to the father of the Marshalsea, without giving pain to his child, the other to say something to that child, though it were but a word, in explanation of his having come there. "'Allow me,' said the father, "'to see you downstairs.' She had slipped out out of the rest, and they were alone. "'Not on any account,' said the visitor hurriedly. "'Pray, allow me to—' Chink, chink, chink. "'Mr. Clennam,' said the father, "'I am deeply, deeply—' But his visitor had shut up his hand to stop the clinking, and had gone downstairs with great speed. He saw no little Dorrit on his way down, or in the yard. The last two or three stragglers were hurrying to the lodge, and he was following, when he caught sight of her in the doorway of the first house from the entrance. He turned back hastily. "'Pray, forgive me,' he said, "'for speaking to you here. Pray forgive me for coming here at all. I followed you to-night.' I did so that I might endeavour to render you and your family some service. You know the terms on which I and my mother are, and may not be surprised that I have preserved our distant relations at her house, lest I should unintentionally make her jealous or resentful, or, or do you any injury in her estimation. What I have seen here, in this short time, has greatly increased my heartfelt wish to be a friend to you. It would recompense me for much disappointment, if I could hope to gain your confidence. She was scared at first, but seemed to take courage while he spoke to her. "'You are very good, sir. You speak very earnestly to me, but I—but I wish you had not watched me.' He understood the emotion with which she said it, to arise in her father's behalf, and he respected it, and was silent. "'Mrs. Clennam has been of great service to me. I don't know what we should have done without the employment she has given me. I am afraid it may not be a good return to become secret with her. 
I can say no more to-night, sir. I am sure you mean to be kind to us. Thank you. Thank you. Let me ask you one question before I leave. Have you known my mother long? I think two years, sir. The bell has stopped. How did you know her first? Did she send here for you? No. She does not even know that I live here. We have a friend, father and I, a poor labouring man, but the best of friends, and I wrote out that I wished to do needlework, and gave his address, and he got what I wrote out displayed at a few places where it cost nothing, and Mrs. Clennam found me that way, and sent for me. The gate will be locked, sir. She was so tremulous and agitated, and he was so moved by compassion for her, and by deep interest in her story, as it dawned upon him, that he could scarcely tear himself away. But the stoppage of the bell, and the quiet in the prison, were a warning to depart, and with a few hurried words of kindness he left her gliding back to her father. But he remained too late. The inner gate was locked, and the lodge closed. After a little fruitless knocking with his hand, he was standing there with a disagreeable conviction upon him that he had had got to get through the night, when the voice accosted him from behind. "'Caught, eh?' said the voice. "'You won't go home till morning. Oh, it's you, is it, Mr. Clennam?' The voice was Tip's, and they stood looking at one another in the prison yard as it began to rain. "'You've done it,' observed Tip. "'You must be sharper than that next time.' "'But you are locked in, too,' said Arthur. "'I believe I am,' said Tip, sarcastically. "'About... <laughs> but not in your way. I belong to the shop. Only my sister has a theory that our governor must never know it. I don't see why, myself. "'Can I get any shelter?' asked Arthur. "'What had I better do?' "'We had better get hold of Amy first of all,' said Tip, referring any difficulty to her as a matter of course. "'I would rather walk about all night. It's not much to do, than give that trouble.' "'You needn't do that, if you don't mind paying for a bed. "'If you don't mind paying, they'll make you up one on the snuggery table, "'under the circumstances. If you'll come along, I'll introduce you there.' As they passed down the yard, Arthur looked up at the window of the room he had lately left, where the light was still burning. "'Yes, sir,' said Tip, following his glance. "'That's the Governor's. "'She'll sit with him for another hour, reading yesterday's paper to him, or something of that sort.' and then she'll come out like a little ghost, and vanish away without a sound. "'I don't understand you. "'The governor sleeps up in the room, and she has a lodging at the turnkeys. First house there,' said Tip, pointing out the doorway into which she had retired. First house, sky-parlour. She pays twice as much for it as she would for one twice as good outside. But she stands by the governor, poor dear girl, day and night.' This brought them to the tavern establishment, at the upper end of the prison, where the collegians had just vacated their social evening club. The apartment on the ground floor, in which it was held, was the snuggery in question. The presidential tribune of the chairman, the pewter pots, glasses, pipes, tobacco-ashes, and general flavour of members, were still as that convivial institution had left them on its adjournment. The snuggery had two of the qualities popularly held to be essential to grog for ladies, in respect that it was hot and strong, but in the third point of analogy 
requiring plenty of it, the snuggery was defective, being but a cooped-up apartment. The unaccustomed visitor from outside naturally assumed everybody here to be prisoners, landlord, waiter, barmaid, potboy, and all. Whether they were or not did not appear, but they all had a weedy look. The keeper of a chandler's shop in a front parlour, who took in gentlemen boarders, lent his assistance in making the bed. He had been a tailor in his time, and had kept a phaeton, he said. He boasted that he stood up litigiously for the interests of the college, and he had undefined and undefinable ideas that the marshal intercepted a fund which ought to come to the collegians. He liked to believe this, and always impressed the shadowy grievance on newcomers and strangers, though he could not for his life have explained what fund he meant, or how the notion had got rooted in his soul. He had fully convinced himself, notwithstanding, that his own proper share of the fund was three and ninepence a week, and that in this amount he, as an individual collegian, was swindled by the marshal regularly every Monday. Apparently he helped to make the bed, that he might not lose an opportunity of stating this case, after which unloading of his mind, and after announcing, as it seemed he always did, without anything coming of it, that he was going to write a letter to the papers, and show the marshal up, he fell into miscellaneous conversation with the rest. It was evident from the general tone of the whole party, that they had come to regard insolvency as the normal state of mankind, and the payment of debts as a disease that occasionally broke out. In this strange scene, and with these strange spectres flitting about him, Arthur Clennam looked on at the preparations as if they were part of a dream. Pending which, the long-initiated Tip, with an awful enjoyment of the snuggery's resources, pointed out the common kitchen fire, maintained by subscription of collegians, the boiler for hot water supported in like manner, and other premises generally tending to the deduction that the way to be healthy, wealthy and wise, was to come to the marshalsea. The two tables put together in a corner were, at length, converted into a very fair bed, and the stranger was left to the Windsor chairs, the presidential tribune, the beery atmosphere, sawdust, pipe-lights, spittoons, and repose. But the last item was long, long, long in linking itself to the rest. The novelty of the place, the coming upon it without preparation, the sense of being locked up, the remembrance of that room upstairs, of the two brothers, and above all of the retiring childish form, and the face in which he now saw years of insufficient food, if not of want, kept him waking and unhappy. Speculations, too, bearing the strangest relations towards the prison, but always concerning the prison, ran like nightmares through his mind while he lay awake. Whether coffins were kept ready for people who might die there, where they were kept, how they were kept, where people who died in the prison were buried, how they were taken out, what forms were observed, whether an implacable creditor could arrest the dead, as to escaping, what chances there were of escape, whether a prisoner could scale the walls with a cord and grapple, how he would descend upon the other side, whether he could alight on a housetop, steal down a staircase, let himself out at a door, and get lost in the crowd, as to fire in the prison, if one were to break out while he lay there. And these involuntary starts of fancy were, after all, but the setting of a picture in which three people kept before him. His father, with the steadfast look with which he had died, prophetically darkened forth in the portrait, his mother, with her arm up, warding off his suspicion, 
Little Dorrit, with her hand on the degraded arm, and her drooping head turned away. What if his mother had an old reason she well knew for softening to this poor girl? What if the prisoner now sleeping quietly, heaven grant it, by the light of the great day of judgment, should trace back his fall to her? What if any act of hers and of his father's should have even remotely brought the grey heads of those two brothers so low? A swift thought shot into his mind. In that long imprisonment here, and in her own long confinement to her room, did his mother find a balance to be struck? I admit that I was accessory to that man's captivity. I have suffered for it in kind. He has decayed in his prison, I in mine, I have paid the penalty. When all the other thoughts had faded out, this one held possession of him. When he fell asleep, she came before him in her wheeled chair, warding him off with this justification. When he awoke, and sprang up causelessly frightened, the words were in his ears, as if her voice had slowly spoken them at his pillow, to break his rest. He withers away in his prison, I wither away in mine. Inexorable justice is done. What do I owe on this score? End of Book One, Chapter Eight Book One, Chapter Nine of Little Dorrit. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Little Dorrit by Charles Dickens. Book One, Poverty. Chapter Nine, Little Mother. The morning light was in no hurry to climb the prison wall and look in at the snuggery windows, and when it did come in, it would have been more welcome if it had come alone instead of bringing a rush of rain with it. But the equinoctial gales were blowing out at sea, and the impartial south-west wind in its flight would not neglect even the narrow marshalsea. While it roared through the steeple of St. George's Church, and twirled all the cowls in the neighbourhood, it made a swoop to beat the Southwark smoke into the jail, and, plunging down the chimneys of the few early collegians who were yet lighting their fires, half suffocated them. Arthur Clennam would have been little disposed to linger in bed, though his bed had been in a more private situation, and less affected by the raking out of yesterday's fire, the kindling of to-day's under the collegiate boiler, the filling of that Spartan vessel at the pump, the sweeping and sawdusting of the common room, and other such preparations. Heartily glad to see the morning, though little rested by the night, he turned out as soon as he could distinguish objects about him and paced the yard for two heavy hours before the gate was opened. The walls were so near to one another, and the wild clouds hurried over them so fast, that it gave him a sensation like the beginning of sea-sickness to look up at the gusty sky. The rain, carried aslant by flaws of wind, blackened that side of the central building which he had visited last night, but left a narrow dry trough under the lee of the wall where he walked up and down among the weights of straw and dust and paper, the waste-droppings of the pump, and the stray leaves of yesterday's greens. It was as haggard a view of life as a man need look upon. Nor was it relieved by any glimpse of the little creature who had brought him there. Perhaps she glided out of her doorway, and in at that where her father lived, while his face was turned from both. 
but he saw nothing of her. It was too early for her brother. To have seen him once was to have seen enough of him to know that he would be sluggish to leave whatever frowsy bed he occupied at night. So, as Arthur Clennam walked up and down, waiting for the gate to open, he cast about in his mind for future rather than for present means of pursuing his discoveries. At last the lodge-gate turned, and the turnkey, standing on the step, taking an early comb at his hair, was ready to let him out. With a joyful sense of release he passed through the lodge, and found himself again in the little outer courtyard where he had spoken to the brother last night. There was a string of people already straggling in, whom it was not difficult to identify as the nondescript messengers, go-betweens, and errand-bearers of the place. Some of them had been lounging in the rain until the gate should open, others who had timed their arrival with greater nicety were coming up now, and passing in with damp whitey-brown paper bags from the grocers, loaves of bread, lumps of butter, eggs, milk, and the like. The shabbiness of these attendants, upon shabbiness, the poverty of these insolvent waiters upon insolvency, was a sight to see. Such threadbare coats and trousers, such fusty gowns and shawls, such squashed hats and bonnets, such boots and shoes, such umbrellas and walking-sticks, never were seen in rag fair. All of them wore the cast-off clothes of other men and women, were made up of patches and pieces of other people's individuality, and had no sartorial existence of their own proper. Their walk was the walk of a race apart. They had a peculiar way of doggedly slinking round the corner, as if they were eternally going to the pawnbroker's. When they coughed, they coughed like people accustomed to be forgotten on doorsteps, and in draughty passages, waiting for answers to letters and faded ink, which gave the recipients of those manuscripts great mental disturbance and no satisfaction. As they eyed the stranger in passing, they eyed him with borrowing eyes, hungry, sharp, speculative as to his softness if they were accredited to him, and the likelihood of his standing something handsome. Mendicity on commission stooped in their high shoulders, shambled in their unsteady legs, buttoned and pinned and darned and dragged their clothes, frayed their buttonholes, leaked out of their figures in dirty little ends of tape, and issued from their mouths in alcoholic breathings. As these people passed him, standing still in the courtyard, and one of them turned back to inquire if he could assist him with his services, it came into Arthur Clennam's mind that he would speak to Little Dorrit again before he went away. She would have recovered her first surprise, and might feel easier with him. He asked this member of the fraternity, who had two red herrings in his hand, and a loaf and a blacking-brush under his arm, where was the nearest place to get a cup of coffee at. The nondescript replied in encouraging terms, and brought him to a coffee-shop in the street within a stone's throw. "'Do you know Miss Dorrit?' asked the new client. The nondescript knew two Miss Dorrits, one who was born inside, that was the one, that was the one. The nondescript had known her many years. In regard of the other Miss Dorrit, the nondescript lodged in the same house with herself and uncle. This changed the client's half-formed design of remaining at the coffee-shop until the nondescript should bring him word that Dorrit had issued forth into the street. He entrusted the nondescript with a confidential message to her, importing that the visitor who had waited on her father last night begged the favour of a few words with her at her uncle's lodging. 
he obtained from the same source full directions to the house, which was very near, dismissed the nondescript, gratified with half a crown, and having hastily refreshed himself at the coffee-shop, repaired with all speed to the clarionet-player's dwelling. There were so many lodgers in this house, that the doorpost seemed to be as full of bell-handles as a cathedral organ is of stops. Doubtful which might be the clarionet stop, he was considering the point, when a shuttlecock flew out of the parlour-window, and alighted on his hat. He then observed that in the parlour-window was a blind with the inscription, Mr. Cripple's Academy, also in another line, Evening Tuition, and behind the blind was a little white-faced boy with a slice of bread and butter and a battledore. The window being accessible from the footway, he looked in over the blind, returned the shuttlecock, and put his question. "'Dorrit,' said the little white-faced boy, Master Cripples, in fact, "'Mr. Dorrit, third bell and one knock.' The pupils of Mr. Cripples appeared to have been making a copy-book of the street-door, it was so extensively scribbled over in pencil. The frequency of the inscriptions, Old Dorrit and Dirty Dick, in combination, suggested intentions of personality on the part of Mr. Cripples's pupils. There was ample time to make these observations before the door was opened by the poor old man himself. "'Ha! said he, very slowly remembering Arthur, "'you were shut in last night?' "'Yes, Mr. Dorrit. I hope to meet your niece here presently.' "'Oh!' said he, pondering, out of my brother's way. Mm, true. Would you come upstairs and wait for her? Thank you. Turning himself as slowly as he turned in his mind, whatever he heard or said, he led the way up the narrow stairs. The house was very close, and had an unwholesome smell. The little staircase windows looked in at the back windows of other houses as unwholesome as itself, with poles and lines thrust out of them on which unsightly linen hung, as if the inhabitants were angling for clothes and had had some wretched bites not worth attending to. In the back garret, a sickly room, with a turned-up bedstead in it, so hastily and recently turned up that the blankets were boiling over, as it were, and keeping the lid open. A half-finished breakfast of coffee and toast for two persons was jumbled down anyhow on a rickety table. There was no one there, the old man mumbling to himself, after some consideration, that Fanny had run away, went to the next room to fetch her back. The visitor, observing that she held the door on the inside, and that when the uncle tried to open it there was a sharp adjuration of, "'Don't, stupid!' and an appearance of loose stocking and flannel concluded that the young lady was in an undress. The uncle, without appearing to come to any conclusion, shuffled in again, sat down in his chair, and began warming his hands at the fire, not that it was cold, or that he had any waking idea whether it was or not. "'What did you think of my brother, sir?' he asked, when he by and by discovered what he was doing left off, reached over to the chimney-piece, and took his clarionet case down. "'I was glad,' said Arthur, very much at a loss, for his thoughts were on the brother before him, to find him so well and cheerful. "'Ah!' muttered the old man. "'Yes, yes, 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 yes!' Arthur wondered what he could possibly want with the clarionet case. 
he did not want it at all. He discovered in due time that it was not the little paper of snuff, which was also on the chimney-piece, put it back again, took down the snuff instead, and solaced himself with a pinch. He was as feeble, spare, and slow in his pinches as in everything else. But a certain little trickling of enjoyment of them played in the poor worn nerves about the corners of his eyes and mouth. "'Amy, Mr. Clennam, what do you think of her?' "'I am much impressed, Mr. Dorrit, by all that I have seen of her and thought of her.' "'My brother would have been quite lost without Amy,' he returned. "'We should all have been lost without Amy. She is a very good girl, Amy. She does her duty.' Arthur fancied that he heard in these praises a certain tone of custom, which he had heard from the father last night, with an inward protest and feeling of antagonism. It was not that they stinted her praises, or were insensible to what she did for them, but that they were lazily habituated to her, as they were to all the rest of their condition. He fancied that although they had before them every day the means of comparison between her and one another and themselves, they regarded her as being in her necessary place, as holding a position towards them all which belonged to her, like her name or her age. He fancied that they viewed her not as having risen away from the prison atmosphere, but as appertaining to it, as being vaguely what they had a right to expect, and nothing more. Her uncle resumed his breakfast, and was munching toast, sopped in coffee, oblivious of his guest, when the third bell rang. That was Amy, he said, and went down to let her in, leaving the visitor with as vivid a picture on his mind of his begrimed hands, dirt-worn face, and decayed figure, as if he were still drooping in his chair. She came up after him, in the usual plain dress, and with the usual timid manner. Her lips were a little parted, as if her heart beat faster than usual. "'Mr. Clennam, Amy,' said her uncle, "'has been expecting you some time.' "'I took the liberty of sending you a message.' "'I received the message, sir.' "'Are you going to my mother's this morning?' "'I think not, for it is past your usual hour.' "'Not to-day, sir. I'm not wanted to-day. "'Will you allow me to walk a little way in whatever direction you may be going? "'I can then speak to you as we walk, "'both without detaining you here and without intruding longer here myself.' "'She looked embarrassed, but said, if he pleased. "'He made a pretense of having mislaid his walking-stick "'to give her time to set the bedstead right, "'to answer her sister's impatient knock at the wall, "'and to say a word softly to her uncle.' Then he found it, and they went downstairs, she first, he following, the uncle standing at the stair-head, and probably forgetting them before they had reached the ground floor. Mr. Cripples's pupils, who were by this time coming to school, desisted from their morning recreation of cuffing one another with bags and books, to stare with all the eyes they had at a stranger who had been to see Dirty Dick. They bore the trying spectacle in silence until the mysterious visitor was at a safe distance, 
when they burst into pebbles and yells, and likewise into reviling dances, and in all respects buried the pipe of peace with so many savage ceremonies, that if Mr. Cripples had been the chief of the Cripple-Waboo tribe, with his war-paint on, they could scarcely have done greater justice to their education. In the midst of this homage, Mr. Arthur Clennam offered his arm to Little Dorrit, and Little Dorrit took it. "'Will you go by the Iron Bridge?' said he where there is an escape from the noise of the street. Little Dorrit answered, if he pleased, and presently ventured to hope that he would not mind Mr. Cripples's boys, for she had herself received her education, such as it was, in Mr. Cripples's evening academy. He returned, with the best will in the world, that Mr. Cripples's boys were forgiven out of the bottom of his soul. Thus did Cripples unconsciously become a master of the ceremonies between them and bring them more naturally together than Beau Nash might have done, if they had lived in his golden days, and he had alighted from his coach and six for the purpose. The morning remained squally, and the streets were miserably muddy, but no rain fell as they walked towards the iron bridge. The little creature seemed so young in his eyes, that there were moments when he found himself thinking of her, if not speaking to her, as if she were a child. Perhaps he seemed as old in her eyes, as she seemed young in his. "'I am sorry to hear you were so inconvenienced last night, sir, as to be locked in. It was very unfortunate.' "'It was nothing,' he returned. He had had a very good bed. "'Oh, yes,' she said quickly. She believed there were excellent beds at the coffee-house. He noticed that the coffee-house was quite a majestic hotel to her, and that she treasured its reputation. "'I believe it is very expensive.' said Little Dorrit. "'But my father has told me that quite beautiful dinners may be got there, and wine,' she added timidly. "'Were you ever there?' "'Oh, no! Only into the kitchen to fetch hot water.' To think of growing up with a kind of awe upon one as to the luxuries of that superb establishment, the Marshalsea Hotel. "'I asked you last night,' said Clennam, "'how you had become acquainted with my mother.' "'Did you ever hear her name before she sent for you?' "'No, sir.' "'Do you think your father ever did?' "'No, sir.' He met her eyes raised to his, with so much wonder in them. She was scared when the encounter took place, and shrunk away again, that he felt it necessary to say, "'I have a reason for asking which I cannot very well explain. But you must, on no account, suppose it to be of a nature to cause you the least alarm or anxiety, quite the reverse, and you think that, at no time of your father's life, was my name of Clennam ever familiar to him? No, sir. He felt from the tone in which she spoke, that she was glancing up at him with those parted lips, therefore he looked before him rather than make her heart beat quicker still by embarrassing her afresh. Thus they emerged upon the iron bridge, which was as quiet after the roaring streets as though it had been open country. The wind blew roughly, the wet squalls came rattling past them, skimming the pools on the road and pavement, and raining them down into the river. The clouds raced on furiously in the lead-coloured sky, the smoke and mist raced after them, the dark tide ran fierce and strong in the same direction. Little Dorrit seemed the least the quietest and weakest of heaven's creatures. "'Let me put you in a coach,' 
said Clennam, very nearly adding, "'My poor child!' She hurriedly declined, saying that wet or dry made little difference to her, she used to go about in all weathers. He knew it to be so, and was touched with more pity, thinking of the slight figure at his side, making its nightly way through the damp, dark, boisterous streets to such a place of rest. "'You spoke so feelingly to me last night, sir, and—' I found afterwards that you had been so generous to my father that I could not resist your message, if it was only to thank you, especially as I wished very much to say to you." She hesitated and trembled, and tears rose in her eyes, but did not fall. "'To say to me?' "'That I hope you will not misunderstand my father. Don't judge him, sir, as you would judge others outside the gates. He has been there so long. I never saw him outside, but I can understand that he must have grown different in some things since. My thoughts will never be unjust or harsh towards him, believe me. Not, she said, with a prouder air, as the misgiving evidently crept upon her that she might seem to be abandoning him, not that he has anything to be ashamed of for himself, or that I have anything to be ashamed of for him. He only requires to be understood. I only ask for him that his life may be fairly remembered. All that he said was quite true. It all happened, just as he related it. He is very much respected. Everybody who comes in is glad to know him. He is more courted than any one else. He is far more thought of than the Marshal is." If ever pride were innocent, it was innocent in Little Dorrit when she grew boastful of her father. "'It is often said that his manners are a true gentleman's, and quite a study. I see none like them in that place, but he is admitted to be superior to all the rest. This is quite as much why they make him presents, as because they know him to be needy. He is not to be blamed for being in need. Poor love! Who could be in prison a quarter of a century, and be prosperous?" What affection in her words! What compassion in her repressed tears! What a great soul of fidelity within her! How true the light that shed false brightness round him! If I have found it best to conceal where my home is, it is not because I am ashamed of him, God forbid, nor am I so much ashamed of the place itself, as might be supposed. People are not bad because they come there. I have known numbers of good, persevering, honest people come there through misfortune. They are almost all kind-hearted to one another and it would be ungrateful indeed in me to forget that i have had many quiet comfortable hours there that i had an excellent friend there when i was quite a baby who was very very fond of me that i have been taught there and have worked there and have slept soundly there i think it would be almost cowardly and cruel not to have some little attachment for it after all this she had relieved the faithful fullness of her heart and modestly said, raising her eyes appealingly to her new friends, "'I did not mean to say so much, nor have I ever but once spoken about this before, but it seems to set it more right than it was last night. I said I wished you had not followed me, sir. I don't wish it so much now, unless you should think, indeed, 
I don't wish it at all, unless I should have spoken so confusedly that, 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 that you scarcely understand me, which I am afraid may be the case. He told her with perfect truth that it was not the case, and putting himself between her and the sharp wind and rain, sheltered her as well as he could. "'I feel permitted now,' he said, "'to ask you a little more concerning your father. Has he many creditors?' "'Oh, a great number.' "'I mean detaining creditors, who, who keep him where he is.' "'Oh, yes, a great number.' "'Can you tell me—I can get the information, no doubt, elsewhere, if you cannot—who is the most influential of them?' Little Dorrit said, after considering a little, that she used to hear long ago of Mr. Tite Barnacle as a man of great power. He was a commissioner, or a board, or a trustee, or something. He lived in Grosvenor Square, she thought, or very near it. He was under government, high in the circumlocution office. She appeared to have acquired in her infancy some awful impression of the might of this formidable Mr. Tite Barnacle of Grosvenor Square, or very near it, and the circumlocution office, which quite crushed her when she mentioned him. "'It can do no harm,' thought Arthur, "'if I see this Mr. Tite Barnacle.' The thought did not present itself so quietly, but that her quickness intercepted it. "'Ah!' said Little Dorrit, shaking her head with the mild despair of a lifetime. "'Many people used to think once of getting my poor father out, but you don't know how hopeless it is.' She forgot to be shy at the moment, in honestly warning him away from the sunken wreck he had a dream of raising, and looked at him with eyes which assuredly, in association with her patient face, her fragile figure, her spare dress, and the wind and rain, did not turn him from his purpose of helping her. "'Even if it could be done,' said she, "'and it never can be done now, "'where could father live, or how could he live? "'I have often thought that if such a change could come, "'it might be anything but a service to him now. "'People might not think so well of him outside as they do there. "'He might not be so gently dealt with outside as he is there. "'He might not be so fit himself.' for the life outside, as he is for that." Here, for the first time, she could not restrain her tears from falling, and the little thin hands he had watched when they were so busy, trembled as they clasped each other. "'It would be a new distress to him, even to know that I earn a little money, <clears throat> and that Fanny earns a little money. He is so anxious about us, you see feeling helplessly shut up there. Such a good, good father." He let the little burst of feeling go by before he spoke. It was soon gone. She was not accustomed to think of herself, or to trouble any one with her emotions. He had but glanced away at the piles of city roofs and chimneys, among which the smoke was rolling heavily, and at the wilderness of masts on the river, and the wilderness of steeples on the shore indistinctly mixed together in the stormy haze, when she was again as quiet as if she had been plying her needle in his mother's room. "'You would be glad to have your brother set at liberty?' "'Oh, very, very glad, sir.' "'Well, we will hope for him at least. You told me last night of a friend you had?' His name was Plornish, 
Little Dorrit said. And where did Plornish live? Plornish lived in Bleeding Heart Yard. He was only a plasterer, Little Dorrit said, as a caution to him not to form high social expectations of Plornish. He lived at the last house in Bleeding Heart Yard, and his name was over a little gateway. Arthur took down the address, and gave her his. He had now done all he sought to do for the present, except that he wished to leave her with a reliance upon him, and to have something like a promise from her that she would cherish it. "'There is one friend,' he said, putting up his pocket-book, "'as I take you back. You are going back?' "'Oh, yes, going straight home.' "'As I take you back,' the word home jarred upon him. "'Let me ask you to persuade yourself that you have another friend. I make no professions, and say no more.' "'You are truly kind to me, sir. I am sure I need no more.' They walked back through the miserable muddy streets, and among the poor mean shops, and were jostled by the crowds of dirty hucksters usual to a poor neighbourhood. There was nothing by the short way that was pleasant to any of the five senses, yet it was not a common passage through common rain and mire and noise to Clennam, having this little slender careful creature on his arm. How young she seemed to him, or how old he to her, or what a secret either to the other, in that beginning of the destined interweaving of their stories, matters not here. He thought of her having been born and bred among these scenes, and shrinking through them now, familiar yet misplaced. He thought of her long acquaintance with the squalid needs of life, and of her innocence, of her solicitude for others, and her few years, and her childish aspect. They were coming to the high street, where the prison stood, when a voice cried, "'Little mother! Little mother!' Little Dorrit stopping, and looking back, an excited figure of a strange kind bounced against them, still crying, "'Little mother!' fell down, and scattered the contents of a large basket filled with potatoes in the mud. "'Oh, Maggie,' said Little Dorrit, "'what a clumsy child you are!' Maggie was not hurt, but picked herself up immediately, and then began to pick up the potatoes, in which both Little Dorrit and Arthur Clennam helped. Maggie picked up very few potatoes and a great quantity of mud, but they were all recovered and deposited in the basket.' Maggie then smeared her muddy face with her shawl, and presenting it to Mr. Clennam as a type of purity, enabled him to see what she was like. She was about eight-and-twenty, with large bones, large features, large feet and hands, large eyes, and no hair. Her large eyes were limpid and almost colourless. They seemed to be very little affected by light, and to stand unnaturally still. There was also that attentive listening expression in her face which is seen in the faces of the blind, but she was not blind, having one tolerably serviceable eye. Her face was not exceedingly ugly, though it was only redeemed from being so by a smile, a good-humoured smile, and pleasant in itself, but rendered pitiable by being constantly there. A great white cap, with a quantity of opaque frilling that was always flapping about, apologised for Maggie's baldness and made it so very difficult for her old black bonnet to retain its place upon her head, that it held on round her neck like a gypsy's baby. A commission of haberdashers could alone have reported what the rest of her poor dress was made of, but it had a strong general resemblance to seaweed, with here and there a gigantic tea-leaf. 
her shawl looked particularly like a tea-leaf after long infusion. Arthur Clennam looked at Little Dorrit with the expression of one saying, May I ask who this is? Little Dorrit, whose hand this Maggie, still calling her little mother, had begun to fondle, answered in words, they were under a gateway into which the majority of the potatoes had rolled. "'This is Maggie, sir.' "'Maggie, sir,' echoed the personage presented. "'Little mother!' "'She is the granddaughter,' said Little Dorrit. "'Granddaughter!' echoed Maggie. "'Of my old nurse, who has been dead a long time. "'Maggie, how old are you?' Ten, mother,' said Maggie. "'You can't think how good she is, sir,' said Little Dorrit, with infinite tenderness. "'Good she is,' echoed Maggie, transferring the pronoun in a most expressive way from herself to her little mother. "'Or how clever,' said Little Dorrit. "'She goes on errands as well as any one,' Maggie laughed, "'and is as trustworthy as the Bank of England.' Maggie laughed. "'She earns her own living entirely, entirely, sir,' said Little Dorrit, in a lower and triumphant tone. "'Really does!' "'What is her history?' asked Clennam. "'Think of that, Maggie,' said Little Dorrit, taking her two large hands and clapping them together. "'A gentleman from thousands of miles away, wanting to know your history.' "'My history!' cried Maggie. "'Little mother!' "'She means me,' said Little Dorrit, rather confused. "'She is very much attached to me. "'Her old grandmother was not so kind to her as she should have been. "'Was she, Maggie?' Maggie shook her head, made a drinking vessel of her clenched left hand, drank out of it, and said, "'Gin!' then beat an imaginary child, and said, broom handles and pokers when maggie was ten years old said little dorrit watching her face while she spoke she had a bad fever sir and she's never grown any older ever since ten years old said maggie nodding her head but what a nice hospital so comfortable wasn't it Oh, so nice it was! Such a heavenly place! She had never been at peace before, sir, said Little Dorrit, turning towards Arthur for an instant, and speaking low, and she always runs off upon that. Such beds there is there, cried Maggie, such lemonades, such oranges, such delicious broth and wine such chicken oh ain't it a delightful place to go and stop at so maggie stopped there as long as she could said little dorrit in her former tone of telling a child's story the tone designed for maggie's ear and at last when she could stop there no longer she came out then because she was never to be more than ten years old however long she lived however long she lived echoed maggie and because she was very weak indeed was so weak that when she began to laugh she couldn't stop herself which was a great pity maggie mighty grave of a sudden her grandmother did not know what to do with her 
and for some years was very unkind to her indeed. At length, in course of time, Maggie began to take pains to improve herself, and to be very attentive and very industrious, and by degrees was allowed to come in and out as often as she liked, and got enough to do to support herself, and does support herself, and that—' said Little Dorrit, clapping the two great hands together again, "'is Maggie's history, as Maggie knows.' Ah, but Arthur would have known what was wanting to its completeness, though he had never heard of the words, Little Mother, though he had never seen the fondling of the small spare hand, though he had had no sight for the tears now standing in the colourless eyes, though he had had no hearing for the sob that checked the clumsy laugh. The dirty gateway, with the wind and rain whistling through it, and a basket of muddy potatoes waiting to be spilt again or taken up, never seemed the common hole it really was, when he looked back to it by these lights. Never, never. They were very near the end of their walk, and they now came out of the gateway to finish it. Nothing would serve Maggie but that they must stop at a grocer's window, short of their destination, for her to show her learning. She could read after a sort, and picked out the fat figures in the tickets of prices, for the most part, correctly. She also stumbled, with a large balance of success, against her failures, through various philanthropic recommendations to try our mixture, try our family black, try our orange-flavoured pico, challenging competition at the head of flowery teas, and various cautions to the public against spurious establishments and adulterated articles. When he saw how pleasure brought a rosy tint into little Dorrit's face, when Maggie made a hit, he felt that he could have stood there making a library of the grocer's window, until the rain and wind were tired. The courtyard received them at last, and there he said good-bye to little Dorrit. Little as she had always looked, she looked less than ever when he saw her going into the Marshalsea Lodge passage, the little mother attended by her big child. The cage-door opened, and when the small bird— reared in captivity, had tamely fluttered in, he saw it shut again, and then he came away. End of Book One, Chapter Nine $5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. 